Not Valley Girl. Remember Valet Girls? <laughs> I remember Valley Radio Drone. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil, biggest Empire fan in the world. Well, I don't know about the biggest, but I, I'd say I'm pretty big. We're going to be looking at uh, the second half of our Empire retrospective, unfortunately now titled An Empire Falls. But before that, you need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So now that said, you remember where we left off last week? They had just released Troll and Terror Vision, and even though debt was mounting, the movies were not making back as much money as they, as Charles would have liked them to, things were going all right. You know, he was, he was buying more films, he was expanding the studio. Well, now we get into where all of that debt starts to hit us. Do you remember the second half, the, the last two years of Empire's life? Do you remember how erratic things were? How some movies were not coming out till years after Empire collapsed? That movies you'd read about and then would never come out? Do you remember how this was not the same Empire from a year earlier? No, because like by the time I knew about Empire, they had already folded by this point. Yeah, it was like I kind of came at it backwards. Like I discovered Full Moon and then back in time and checked out all the Empire stuff leading up to Full Moon. So no. Would you say Empire has a specific type of film. I mean, we, we, we talked about how sometimes you'd have like some of the pickups like, like walking the line or things like that. Would you say Empire was mainly horror, sci-fi, fantasy? You, you knew what to expect if you saw that Empire logo on the poster, right? Yes. As long as, you know, if it was an in-house Empire picture, you had a good feeling of what you were going to get. That's no longer the case. Charles Band started to expand Empire at this point. He admits in retrospect he got a little bit too greedy. He was he was buying things he probably shouldn't have, including now we're getting into Empire films that don't feel like Empire films, such as have you ever seen the Malcolm McDowell, Robert Carradine, Roddy Roddy Piper comedy buy and sell? No, unfortunately. Robert Carradine is, I think he's a stockbroker who gets framed and goes to prison run by Malcolm McDowell, and he starts getting all the inmates to buy stock in the former company he worked at so they can get revenge, and then Roddy Roddy Piper is one of the prison enforcers, and then it's a comedy. Not what you think of as an Empire film, huh? No, but uh I, I don't know. There's uh Companies do branch out, though. 
You know, I mean, there are there are things that they're good at, but then they do branch out and try some different uh, titles. And maybe that I mean, I know where this is going. You're, you're like you had said, they made a lot of bad decisions and uh, got titles that weren't really good for them. But uh, there's also the possibility that there were certain films that they did see promise in and they wanted to distribute them through their uh, through their, you know, through their property. And uh, uh, it just didn't work out. I'm sure they weren't all mistake purchases. Well, sticking with the comedy, Charles thought comedy was where Empire needed to expand to, that they had already had a good foothold in horror and sci-fi. My God, have you ever sat through the Princess Academy? Which one was that? I'm, that, I'm late. that was that one that was in, I think it was Eastern Europe. It's basically Porky's, but with girls chasing boys. It's really, really terrible. It sounds familiar. I think I might have seen that on, like, USA Up All Night or something. One I know you probably saw on USA Up All Night. Again, one that you, you'd go, wait, this was Empire? Not Valley Girl. Remember Valet Girls? <laughs> I remember Valley Girls. You forgot it was an Empire film, though, didn't you? I, yeah. <laughs> I remember Valet Girls. So yeah, Char Charles was not making wise decisions when it came to the whole comedy thing, because none of these work. And then you have him running Wizard Video at this. Now, with Wizard Video, he is distributing all of these films that, you know, would have been lost to drive-ins and grindhouses and things like that. But he was the first one who really jumped on the idea, again, showing how far ahead he was of the game, thinking, making movies direct to video. Now, these next couple of films you're not going to think of as Empire films because they technically weren't direct-to-video wizard films. But for all intents and purposes, it's Empire. Have you ever seen Mutant Hunt and Necropolis? Oh, yeah. Mutant Hunt's got that awesome cover. And, oh, the uh, poster is so beautiful for Mutant Hunt. Way better than... I like the movie, but that poster's way better than the movie. Oh, yeah. The the poster way oversold the movie. I'm like, this is going to be like the Terminator. Like, oh, this is awesome. And then uh, same thing. Like, I enjoy the movie. I think it's a lot of fun, but it cost about $1.50. And, and, and they, they do have the robots that are on the cover in the movie, but it's not... It doesn't look that good necropolis i had only seen recently within the past couple years because they uh full moon uh, it, grindhouse full moon grindhouse yeah what about zombie-thon which is not even a real movie uh i don't think so because remember how we talked about last week the best of sex and violence and the auditions tapes and the best of TNA, celebrity TNA and all that, how he had such a, a great stranglehold on the comp tape market? Well, he tried that one more time with Zombiethon. All the best zombie scenes of all the wizard video movies that he owned and edited them into a framework of a woman being chased by zombies. She runs into a movie theater, and between the clips, you find out that everyone in the movie theater is a zombie, and she slowly turns into a zombie. But, strangely enough, he somehow had a better print of Oasis of the Zombies than I've ever seen. His print looks cleaner than the freaking DVD's print, which has a ghosting effect on it. I don't know where the hell his print of Oasis of the Zombies came from if the DVD can't even look that good. Back to what we think of as Empire. He made another movie with Malcolm McDowell called The Caller, and then he made a movie back when David Dakota was actually trying. I really enjoyed Creepazoids. Pretty much every movie we're going to list from here on, Cecil, did not make any money. There's some really good stuff in here. Creepazoids is actually pretty good. Oh, Creepazoids is great. That's another one that has just a wonderful cover. That, that doesn't sell the movie at all. No. That, that, that massively oversells that film. 
It certainly does, but I still enjoyed it. I had a feeling by that point, I like, cause, cause you look at the front and then you look at the back and you're like, okay, this is not the same thing, but still it's, it's just a wonderful cover. And then, yeah, I think, uh, I'm with you back when, when David Dakota was really still doing it and, uh, like trying made like a really fun, cool sci-fi horror film that did crib here and there. Uh, it was, I don't know, it was enjoyable enough that, uh, you're, I'm willing to just kind of give it a pass and, uh, it, it is what it is. I, I like creepazoids a lot. It's also got Linnea Quigley and Ashlyn Gear in it. Yes, it does. Doesn't one of the, cause it's been a while since I've seen, cause it rips off Alien, like doesn't one of them get like, like kinda, I don't, I don't remember if it's chest bursted or, or something. Been 15 years since I've seen it, so I'll have to just trust you on that. Yeah, I, I remember somebody getting like basically exploded in some capacity. I actually, uh, I got the, the Blu-ray not too long ago and just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. That's the one that I'm totally doing a, a video for in the somewhat near future. What about 1987's Dolls? Dolls was, um, so you got a movie like Dolls where dolls are creepy to begin with. And then you add in a really excellent director like Stuart Gordon, who totally knows how to make horror. You've got a movie that is genuinely creepy and weird and continues my dislike of dolls that I'm pretty sure started with Trilogy of Terror, with which, I mean, it's not a doll, but it's still... The, 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 the Zuni fetish? The Zuni fetish that, yeah, uh, it comes out with a little, uh, with, with a little spear and I think scared the crap out of it. So and that was uh, a TV movie. Exactly. That wasn't, the thing is, I don't even remember, that was Trilogy of Terror. There were three movies. I don't remember what the other two were. I only remember that. And I remember that, that scared the crap out of me. But, uh, yeah, that and, uh, so many other movies with, like, killer dolls have, uh, have always creeped me out. But, uh, yeah, dolls was, uh, was, was good. That's a shame that that didn't make any money. Well, and then you have one that, now, this is a little bit more atypical of an Empire picture. This one's more along the walking the line kind of thing, even though it is an Empire film. Have you ever seen 1987's Enemy Territory? Enemy territory. Um, it's essentially the raid. A white insurance adjuster goes to an almost all-black building in the slum, and he gets stuck in there when a gang war breaks out, so him and a couple of gang members have to make it through all the other gangs floor by floor to escape. And Tony Todd is the evil gang leader. It's essentially Empire doing the raid 30 years before the raid. It sounds familiar. I'm, I, I might have seen it like a long time ago. It's actually better than, I, I hadn't seen it in quite a while, and I watched it again last week. A lot better than I remembered it being, honestly. And then we move on to, I remember when I was, I think I saw this on USA Up All Night, and it was the title that grabbed me. Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, which is really just a TNA space version of Most Dangerous Game. It certainly is, but it's wonderful. Elizabeth Caton. Oh my god, I love Elizabeth Caton. She, uh, she was so, she's so cute. I, like, fell in love with her with, uh, Friday the 13th Part 7. She just, uh, was, was so good, uh, in, in all of her low budget movie glory. Such a cornball movie. And it, yeah, it's totally the most dangerous game. No, like, not even trying to not be. It's just shameless. They amped up the TNA a little bit, though. Oh, they amped up the TNA and they added a, a robot that didn't really do a whole lot. But, uh. He looked cool. He did look cool, but yeah, it's, uh, it's just a, a fun movie. And Brink Stevens too. 
Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, that feels like what an Empire film should have felt like. For a while here, like with Buy and Sell, Enemy Territory, Princess Academy, Valet Girls, it was like he was sliding away from Empire. And then all of a sudden, Slave Girls, and you're like, nope, Empire's back. You're gonna, okay, as much as I love Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity as a title, the original title is almost as good. The movie was originally sold as Space Sluts in the Slammer. <laughs> That's almost as good. I think you could probably sell Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity a little bit easier. I think Space Sluts, like, I mean, it, it sounds like absolutely porno. How about the movie Vicious Lips? I mean, it's not a porno. It sure as hell sounds like one. And Vicious Lips is a weird one. It's a pickup. It's not one that was made for Empire. It was an Albert Pune movie. I think he made it on like $10,000 in one week. And in a way, you can kind of tell. Vicious Lips basically was a film that never came out. It played, according to Albert Pune, about eight drive-ins across America, and then came out on VHS in Australia and Germany only under the title Pleasure Planet. Otherwise, until it just came out on DVD and on MGM's On Demand channel a few years ago, this movie was one of those, I know it exists, but nobody's seen it. It either is getting or it just got a Blu-ray release. I, I do want to say this about Vicious Lips, though. I don't care if you like the movie or not. That soundtrack by Sue Sad is phenomenal. Yeah, Vicious Lips, I like a lot. Uh, I had seen VHS copy of it sometime a long time Talk ago. Talk about another cover that oversells the movie, huh? Oh, yeah, but uh, but it's cool. I mean, it kind of fits in with the theme of the movie because, you know, it's this, you know, it, it's these badass, like, rock chicks, and uh, it I don't know, it just fits. And again, uh, I had come to temper my expectations and know that uh, you're going to have these amazing covers and uh, these kind of low-budget movies. So uh, at least they were trying. Like, now uh, movie studios don't even try with the covers. It's just floating head and all that nonsense. And, like, back then it was, like, these really beautiful painted covers, these cornball low-budget movies, but it made them feel more special. I think I think Vicious Lips has a great tagline, too. They're lost and loose in outer space. <laughs> I cannot wait to see that. And like, Because I've only ever seen like a crappy VHS copy, so I'm looking forward to seeing like a really nice, pristine, uh, restored copy of it. Then after that, we have a movie that... Have you ever seen Galactic Gigolo? Yes! Yes, Galactic Gigolo is so horrendously awful, but uh, but uh, it's great. Where where he's like he he wins like the intergalactic competition from like broccoli, and he gets to go to Earth and have sex with like whoever he wants. Galactic Gigolo is hilarious. Well, its director hates Charles Band. He says the movie was sodomized by Charles Band in editing because it was supposed to be a non-animated adult cartoon, and Band didn't get that. I think the guy's uh, got his head up his own ass a little bit because I don't think without Charles Band's re-editing, that movie really would have been saved. I don't, I don't think he had some unsung underground classic here. Okay, there are some movies where you can tell, like, there's something missing, it needs to be re-edited, or there might be, uh, you know, like we keep bringing up Blair Witch 2, where uh, you could tell that, uh, alright, something's amiss. But with Galactic Gigolo, the acting is so bad, like, everything in it is so bad, I really don't see how he thinks that there's some, mis there, this is like this lost classic movie. I think that, uh, I mean, maybe his version a little bit more to what he feels, like, I mean, I'm, I'm 
curious to see what he would have done with it, but I can't see how there would be some kind of magical edit that would make that not a completely cheesy, ridiculous movie, you know? He also, and I don't know if this was before or after, but he also made Assault of the Killer Bimbos for Ban. And Assault of the Killer Bimbos, the original title, was Hack'em High. I like Assault of the Killer Bimbos better. I actually think it's a pretty good flick for what it is, but again, he says Charles Band completely wrecked his masterpiece in editing, and he's essentially washed his hands of it. Assault of the Killer Bimbos, again, we've only seen the Band edit. I think it's a fine movie, and I really don't see his edit could have been some misunderstood masterpiece. Yeah, uh, that was another one, Elizabeth Caton, huzzah. I don't, I think that this guy, I don't know, he's talking out of his own ass. It's like, look, dude, you, you, you made Galactic Gigolo and, and Assault of the Killer Bimbos. Like, I don't know how uh, there could have been some kind of magical edit on either of these that would have made them something else besides what they were. I would be more than willing to see, but I don't think that, that I think that he's just, He's just mad because maybe, you know, the version that uh, got released was not his version. But, uh, I, you know, I do usually side with the directors. But in this case, I think that both movies were fine as they came out. I would have liked to have seen uh, his version, but that's just, you know, but it didn't happen. Th- th- there's one other element in here. This is something that recurs with Charles Band. I'm like you. We yeah, I usually side with the director. But have you noticed that with, like, Stuart Gordon on Reanimator, even though we haven't got to it yet, Scott Spiegel on The Intruder? and a couple of other ones every time charles band takes the movie away from the director at least after the fact they go you made it a better movie i with somebody like band i kind of gotta think he knows what he's doing here I, I don't think he's like scissor hands weinstein i think band is taking these movies away because he's going what did you do let's see if we can save this well, Band, I mean, is already an accomplished uh, director, and he's not just like, like there's so many movies where a lot of times what ha- happens is you get a producer who comes in, they think that they know what's better, and so they'll end up cutting stuff that shouldn't be cut, and then ends up botching and ruining the movie, whereas he is trying to come in, I mean, he already knows his stuff, so he's coming in to try to make the movie better because it's going to be under his label, so he's going to want to sell it, and he's going to want it to be able to be as appealing to as mo- you know most people as possible so i think that he but i think that uh he knows his stuff and him coming in and, and trying to fix that uh is is in one of these rare instances where it's actually a good thing uh and he also seems like somebody who i feel that you would be able to if you were a good enough director and you had a good enough relationship i think that there would be a positive give and take you would be able to say like look i really believe in this particular sequence and he might come in and try to make some alterations so he always seemed to me like somebody who got it like he would uh, be willing to work with the director as opposed to just nope taking this away you know cutting it myself well he has a reputation of not being the most upstanding guy and he has a reputation of being the most upstanding guy it all depends on who you talk to now from this point forward empire is starting to fall apart almost every movie i'm going to bring up now with the exception of ghoulies 2 basically almost every movie from here on out 
wasn't released for years after it was made. Almost every single one of these next movies sat on the shelf for a minimum of a year, and in some cases as long as four years before ever actually coming out. Empire is starting to have problems. Band thought he could solve the money problems and the credit problems by buying everything possible. He thought, if I acquire every movie I can, and I release all of these, one of them's got to hit and get me out of trouble. So basically, he was, a, he was all, you know, in gambling terms, he was all in at this point. And it, as we know, it didn't necessarily work. But for instance, they made the film Catacombs in the eight. Most of us didn't see it until 1993 when, when New World Pictures released it as the fourth film in the Curse franchise. The film made as Catacombs for Empire was released as Curse 4, The Ultimate Sacrifice, five years after it was made. Ah, uh, you know, sometimes you just uh, keep throwing crap at the wall and hope that something sticks. You know, Cellar Dweller, made in 88, didn't come out till 1990. Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, which is a great title, by the way. Much better than the original title, The Piranha Women. Now, even though it stars, you know, all-around jackass Bill Maher, I actually like Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. I think Maher is actually fun in it, although he won't admit he's ever made this movie. I think he's fun in it. I think Shannon Tweed is fun in it. Adrian Barbeau is fun in it. I actually enjoy this movie, even if, you know, Maher does not. Mar wouldn't know something uh, good if it bit him in the ass, so I, I don't take uh, what he's done to heart. I think that uh, that was back in – he was getting put in things. I think that um, he became a bigger horse's ass over the years, which is why, like, now he looks back at the weird movies that he's done, like Cam Cannibal Women, The Avocado Jungle of Death, like The Pizza Guy, and, oh, no, I didn't make those or I, or he'll do some ironic thing where no i made that because and he'll come up with some weird stupid reason as to why he did it as opposed to the fact that you know he just it was a job that he did kind of women in the avocado jungle of death was another one that i first saw on usa up all night and uh later same saw. here you know yeah you know what usa up all night and band must have had some kind of a deal because i saw a lot of empire films on that show yeah i certainly did again like didn't know it at the time and uh i think that if i'm not mistaken i think that might have been the gilbert godfrey years i enjoyed it and then i enjoyed it even more when i saw the uh the full cut and uh it's a uh, it's fun dumb movie and uh, i think that uh, the name drew a lot of people to it it's you know piranha was a piranha women or piranha girls the piranha women the piranha women nobody would have saw the piranha women but as soon as you say something like cannibal women in the avocado jungle of death they're like all right i need to see this movie because of that title but here's the thing and I'm not trying to heap undue praise onto the film. I think it actually works better now in the SJW culture we have. Because it's really an examination of toxic masculinity meeting toxic feminism, isn't it? Uh, I'm not even touching that. Okay, and then, then we go to, like, Dr. Alien, which was also known as I Was a Teenage Sex Mutant, which is a much better title than Dr. Alien, but that's a god-awful film. And then we have the very underrated Ghost Town. Now, this is another one that wouldn't come out for another three years when New World would eventually release it. This is after Band loses the company. There was a whole bunch of, a whole slew of unreleased films because at this point, he was making the movies, but he didn't have the money to release them. Have you ever seen Ghost Town, the weird kind of time travel-y ghost zombie western? 
Yes, way back when, uh, in the way back machine of 2010, uh, when I started doing my show, I had somebody who contacted me and was like, uh, requested Ghost Town. Oh my God, you have to see this movie. It's great. And I was like, I had never heard of this. Uh, managed to, uh, land a VHS copy of it, watched it and was like, wow, it, was right. This is really great. I don't even like westerns, but it was a sort of ghost western well, it's kind time of a modern travel western, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it had a lot of different elements in it. The copy was really bad. So uh, I was like, wow, I really dig this movie. I really kind of would like it to eventually come out in a, a remastered form, and it did eventually. Uh, Shout put it out. I want to say like three, four years ago. It uh, looks really, really nice. It's uh, it's, it's actually included in the Empire box set too. Oh, that's nice. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a cool movie, and uh, I like it a lot. I mean, I probably would have seen it now uh, because you know I got the the box set coming. I saw it all the way back then and really dug it. And uh, just for whatever reason, it it uh, it didn't hit my radar. Well, and then the last big release he had. Now, technically, Robot Jocks would be a big release, but that flopped. But the last big release he had was Ghoulies 2, because he made a very wise move. Now, he had a couple of extra producers coming into Empire at this point to kind of save it. He needed to get, take on partners to keep the com- company afloat at this point. So it's not all Charles Band from here on. He made Ghoulies 2. And they made the wise decision to have the up-and-coming heavy metal band, Wasp, who he'd worked with on Terror Vision, Dungeon Master, Rage War before, an exclusive music video and song for the soundtrack, which also got, I don't know if you remember from 1988, that got a ton of play. Uh, The trailers, the TV spots, Wasp being interviewed on MTV. Today, MTV might be a joke, but that was a big market for Ghoulies 2 to hit in 88. Oh, hell yeah. Like, that was one of the reasons why I, well, I mean, I already wanted to see Ghoulies 2 because I loved Ghoulies 1, but then, all right, Blackie Lawless, yes. And the the funny thing is, when they made the video, Blackie Lawless wasn't totally on board with it. He said, you know, he, he'd worked with Band before, but he knew Band was kind of a lower budget kind of guy. They they were in, uh, I, I think, England, playing a show at Hammersmith Odin, and after the show, Someone from Empire pulled them aside, showed them a rough cut of the movie, and he was like, you know what? Yeah, we're in. We were approached with an idea for a movie for Ghoulies 2. We went and we looked at the, at the footage, and we decided then at that point that Scream Until You Like It would be the perfect song to showcase an idea like this. To me, it's one of the better experiences that I've had because the people that ran these, these creatures made them come to life when we were doing this video. And after it was done, in all honesty, to watch these little guys be put in the box left me with a strange feeling. So they actually shot for the music video. They got all of the ghoulie puppets to film new scenes exclusively for the music video. You just don't do that anymore, do you? No, it's kind of a lost thing. Well, Ghoulies 2, you know, it made money, but it's still not a lot. You know, Empire's still hemorrhaging money. He gives Rennie Harlan his first shot. You ever see 1988's Prison? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, with, uh, Kane Hodder. Pretty decent. I thought it looked a lot bigger than its budget. Rennie Harlan knew how to spend some money back then and make it look like a lot more. Rennie Harlan, like, I, I know the guy gets a lot of grief, but I've always... Because now he sucks. But I think that his movies always have a certain, like, I mean, they look bigger than they are. 
Fort Fairlane looked great. Fort Fairlane looked amazing. Fort, and I love Fort Fairlane, but yeah, Fort Fairlane was not a huge budgeted film, but man, does it look and feel like a really big budgeted film. Well, and then we go to that, to the most famous Empire film that never got released, but kind of did, Pulse Pounders. This was supposed to be the start of an anthology film where the idea was to have four short films in it, all about 25 to 30 minutes apiece, and they would all be sequels to other Empire films. Because remember how Charles Band loved the Marvel comics, and he would implement this later on with Full Moon. He wanted to do crossovers. That's actually one of the reasons that Eliminators was structured the way it was, that he wanted that to be able to have those characters show up in other Empire films. He wanted to build a cinematic universe. Again, showing how much far ahead of the game he was from Marvel, DC, and Universal and all that. And Pulse Pounders was supposed to be sort of the pilot movie. And the the most famous one was Trancers 2, or as we know it, Trancers 1.5, City of Lost Angels, was one of these with Helen Hunt, Tim Thomerson, and then there were three other segments. Three of the four segments have now all been released on Full Moon's website as single short films. I still kind of want to see the what Pulse Pounders would have been on its own, because from what I've read, the segments that got released are not exactly how they were supposed to be structured in Pulse Pounders. Yeah, they, uh, I I would have been curious to see that as like an ongoing thing, you know, they would have, or if they would have been hits on their own, like there would have been the breakout hit and okay, you know, we're going to continue Dungeon Master. We're going to continue. I mean, they did continue Trancers, but uh, uh, they were kind of doing that here. Except at this point, we never saw the 1.5. So technically they didn't continue Trancers till the full moon era. Well, that's what I'm saying. They didn't continue the train. And the thing is, 1.5 doesn't really, like 1.5 is a direct sequel to Trancers, but it's not really a prequel to Trancers 2. So it's, uh, it is kind of a, uh, an anomaly, but it's, it's neat that they finally did get them and that and, uh, Evil Priest and all that. It was just after hearing about them for so long, it was cool to finally be able to see them because there's been things where they just get lost and they never recovered and something like that for them to stumble upon it. It was uh, pretty cool. And I was glad to finally be able to check them out after hearing about them for so many years. With Empire trying the cinematic universe thing, do you think that could have worked in 88, or was Band really far, too too far ahead of the game at this point? Uh, it kind of did in a way. Like, I don't know, I always felt that... Yeah, but you, in in Full Moon, that wasn't, wouldn't be till the 90s. Times were a lot different in 88. Well, I mean, it was like the the setups were there. So it was like they, they didn't really, he didn't have the capital and the time frame in order to really put it together. And I think in the 90s, when they had the booming video market and, you know, the interest was there, the stories were there and the capital was there, they were able to pull it together and make it work. So I think that he was absolutely ahead of the game. Well, and then we come to another movie that, again, USA Up All Night, Sorority Babes and the Slam Ball Bolarama, which, by the way, is a much better title than what it was shot under, The Imp. 
Although uh, Uncle Impy is the star of the movie, but I know, but the Imp is a bland title. Oh, the Imp's totally Bates a bad. Slimeball Bolarama is a freaking amazing title. Have you ever seen the the trailer versus the movie where the Imp has a completely different voice? Yes, I have. I, I think he had the same voice as when that same puppet was used as Rat Spit in Dungeon Master. I think. Well, I think so. <laughs> the Impy. In Sorority Babes, with the voice they have, they gave him a very cartoon voice in the final movie, which, weirdly enough, works. Yeah, it uh, it absolutely worked. Uh, it, uh, it's just so silly, and, uh, I mean, it's got everything that you would expect in a movie like Sorority Babes and the Slime Bolarama. Uh, you've got nudity, you've got uh, corny scenes, you've got Lin- uh, Linnea Quigley. Uh, Playing against type, she's the... Uh, maybe not the good girl, but she is the hero, oddly enough. That doesn't usually happen with Linnea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the freaking hero, and, I mean, come on. You know, yeah, that's that's one of those rarities. She even gets the nerd. I mean, usually it's... Usually it's the other way, but she gets the nerd at the end, too. Yeah, and uh, you've got Buck Flower. Uh, it was uh, Michael, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Michael Sonye, who was uh, as Dookie Flyswatter uh, playing Uncle Limpy uh, from Blood, uh, Blood Diner. He's awesome. He was in that. Yeah, just so much silliness and bad effects, but completely lovably watchable. And it was another David Dakota movie. So, I mean, David... Again, Dakota used to try. He really did, like, oh, God, I want I want this Dakota back. That's uh, not happening. Keep dreaming. I know. And, and, and then we come to a couple of forgettable ones. Now, the three I'm going to mention here are completely forgettable to the point where when they came out five years after they were made, nobody even remembers Transformation, Spellcaster, or The Occultist. I bet you don't. Uh, Transformations, yes. Uh, the others one, the others, no. Deadly Weapon, which was written and directed by Michael Miner, you know, co-writer of RoboCop. He made Deadly Weapon, which at first I went, wait a minute. I'm watching this movie, and even back then, I'm like, this is a complete ripoff of Laser Blast. A a picked-on kid in the desert finds an alien gun which attaches to his arm. I'm like, what the hell, band? And then I found out it was originally made as Laser Blast 2. So it's like, okay, I get where you're coming from. Deadly, I like Deadly Weapon. Like, it's just, uh... Oh, I didn't say it was bad. I just, before I knew it was an actual Laser Blast sequel, at least intended, I thought it was just a Laser Blast ripoff. Like, come on, band, you're recycling? No, yeah, it was, uh, it was a sequel, and, uh, it worked. Uh, I saw that, like, HBO or something, and, uh, I thought it was, it was good. I liked the kid a lot. I actually liked him more than the kid from the first movie. Uh, he felt a lot more sympathetic, and, uh, I liked how uh, he was kind of tying things together. He's like, oh, this, you know, has something to do with aliens. And he would, like, shoot it in the sky to try to get the aliens' attention. And I think it's a neat movie. That's another one that uh, that needs to get uh, re-released. This movie's strange, because first of all, this doesn't feel like an Empire film at all. This is one of the ones where I think Charles Band is either misremembering his own history or is choosing to exclude this famously on record saying that you know a lot of the films he makes for full moon or empire were lots of horror movies but he said he's proud he's never made a slasher movie i think 1989's the intruder is pretty much a slasher movie band only produced it but no band you have to accept this one this is a slasher movie you made one produce you know maybe he'll he'll do the you know he produced it he didn't direct it so i don't know it's it's a very it's a slasher but it's a bizarre slasher. 
it's still a slasher movie. It's a guy in a grocery store killing all of the clerks in, you know, with whatever object is around. Although that bandsaw scene is still freaking nasty. It is. It's very nasty. You also get to see Sam Raimi in an acting role and Bruce Campbell in a stupid cameo as a cop. Well, it was, uh, uh, wasn't that, wasn't that Spike? Scott Spiegel. It was Scott Spiegel. Yeah. Yeah, Scott Spiegel wrote and directed. I think Sam Raimi co-wrote it. Mm-hmm. And then we come to the final two technical Empire films. Robot Jocks, which is the last, again, technical Empire film. Robot Jocks was made for $10 million, the most band that ever spent on a movie. And it's on the screen. Problem is, it made $1.2 million in its entire theatrical run. Robot Jocks was, unfortunately, the final nail in Empire. If this movie had hit, it might have saved the company. It did not. And prior to this, they had made Arena, which is another one of those won't come out for three or four more years. So that's why Arena is technically the last Empire film, while Robot Jocks is officially the last Empire film. So quotable and uh and fun and the stop motion animation is awesome gary graham is just fantastic like it's so dated in the whole cold war thing i don't care like every every movie doesn't need like movies come out at a specific time and if they're influenced by what's going on at the time then you can't watch it under the lens of now and be like oh well this was a cold war well yeah it was a cold war movie it's because it came out you know back during the cold war so uh i don't i don't care about all that stuff i think that uh it works and it's and i enjoy movies in that i watch them and the the world exists within that movie you know so if things are uh that is how the world was going at the time that's just kind of how i look at it but anyway uh yeah gary graham was awesome and then i remember uh and then he went on to do the alienation tv series and i was like yes uh you know achilles is is in the alienation uh show he was great as and sykes as sykes and uh alex and uh alexander and the whole movie is just you know achilles alexander they're just yelling back and forth at each other i love the stop motion the stop motion i actually recently found some pictures the uh, of the the robots and those things were a lot bigger than i thought they were like they were showing some of the miniatures that they were using and these things were like huge they were like three four feet tall some of them even bigger than that and i'm like wow the the effort and the work and everything that they put into these is just excellent and uh, i get annoyed when you get a lot of people it looks like sh- and it's like, do you realize just how much work they went into? I mean, their stop motion is not an easy thing to do. That whole 10 million bucks was on screen. It totally was. And it's a shame that uh, it didn't do that well. Because, man, do I love Robot Jocks. And then Arena. I don't know if Arena would have, if it had come out in 89, if that could have saved anything. Arena, I don't see that ever being a mass hit. Man, Arena's a fun movie. Arena's a ton of fun. Uh, again, I don't know if that would have done well. It's just, I mean, the concept is, it's, it's rocky in space. What's not like, what can't you possibly like about that? What makes that even funnier is just how much of the cast would wind up on later iterations of Star Trek. That's true. At this point, Empire is basically falling apart to the point where it was so bad that Stuart Gordon relates the la- the literal last couple of days of Empire. I'm going to quote Stuart Gordon here. Charlie's empire had fallen off a cliff, expanding too fast, making too many movies, and by 1989 he had to sell the studio and empire, and empire was swallowed up by a competitor, which would then be later 
labeled Epic Pictures. The last time I visited the offices in La Brea, security guards were searching Empire executives' briefcases before allowing them to leave. They even confiscated a can of prunes Albert was caught smuggling out. When I got out of the elevator to the third floor, I found Benna, that's the secretary, cleaning out her desk, but she buzzed Charlie to let her to let him know I was there. When I went in, I discovered Charlie sitting in the dark, the blinds closed, his walls bare where there used to be posters, holding his head in his hands. When he glanced up at me, he looked like an old man. My heart went out to him. I'm sorry, he said, but he said Charlie never wants pity. Dude, he told me, let's go make some movies. And then Full Moon would be born. So, sad times and a new era beginning, huh? Yeah. I look at it from the perspective of Empire. He learned and he saw the opportunity that was coming up with, uh, with video cassettes and rentals and stuff and went in, you know, full force with Full Moon and they were a force to be reckoned with for a while. And, uh, unfortunately it just eventually I got to the point where the rental market was dying off, and then uh, that just... We'll talk about Full Moon in the next two weeks. Right now about Empire. Do you think if Empire had not imploded the way it did, that maybe... Because one of the things he started doing near the end, which, you know, was a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, because he had these, these giant sound stages from when he bought the deal of Dean Laurentiis lot, he was renting them out to non-Empire Productions. Which which shows that he was trying to do anything he could to save this company. Do you think that it was the market that killed Empire? Was it his too fast of expansion? Was it the fickle the fickle going movie public, or kind of a an amalgamation of all three that just hit him right in the nuts? I'd say it's a com- a combination, a perfect storm of some bad decisions, bad timing, and just a uh, bad market that all just hit and uh, ended up killing it. I mean, it's not the first time that it's happened where uh, a multitude of reasons end up taking something down. So now that Empire had fallen, technically there were more Empire films coming out, but now they were called epic pictures. Stuff like Larry Cohen's The Ambulance or Men at Work, movies like that, but Band had nothing to do with those. He was already moving on to Full Moon from when he, from when he took his buyout and, you know, paid off the creditors. What is Empire's legacy? Leave Full Moon out of it for right now, knowing what, you know, we know now from what Full Moon would become. Just Empire Pictures. What is their legacy in the filmmaking business? Did they have the ability be a mini-major like Canon, which ironically enough folded at the same time that they did, which again points to the market conditions thing? Was this too many companies trying to be mini-majors like Empire, Canon, New World, and New Concord, which would be Roger Corman's company, all try, all vying for the same mini-major status? Was it too crowded of a market? What where does Empire fall in the legacy of this era of film? I think that they're pretty high on the table because uh, a lot of the movies that you mentioned are movies that people are still talking about today and uh, still uh, speak fondly of and are happy with the, you know, they've seen them. Whereas there are other companies that have come up around the same time that were going for the same market that had movies that not as many people have seen. And now they're not, uh, you know, some of them haven't even made it past VHS. So I think that uh, they definitely had a big piece of the pie then let's look at another factor into empire's possible non-destruction with canon folding which was basically you know again a, a string of bad decisions and a bunch of bad paper do you think if maybe canon had not folded that it might have brought consumer confidence up enough that empire could 
have made it because one of the things that hurt Empire was the because they were based in Italy, the lira had lost some of its luster. It started losing to the dollar. That's one of the reasons he would come back to America for full moon was I can do all these things cheaper now in America. Whereas in the 80s, you could do all these things cheaper in Italy. You you can't discount the market conditions either. It's just the way that things were going at the time. I think that uh, it's interesting how things were swinging around because, yeah, it was cheaper to film things in Italy and Spain and whatnot. And then now it kind of seems that the consistent place has been Canada for quite some time. But there was a time where it was cheaper to actually film in the U.S. because they had a lot of tax breaks and um, uh, tax exemptions and that kind of thing. Not just that. You also, in America... You have, especially if you go to Los Angeles and Hollywood, that's where the actors are. He said one of the things that made Empire films technically more expensive than they should have been was getting all the, flying all the crew over and renting all the hotels and then all the meals and the per diems. And he figured, this is, you know, at the end here, if I just go to Hollywood, everything's already there. I don't need to get them a hotel room if they live four blocks from the studio. Things had changed so much, he just kind of was like, you know what, f*** it, it's just cheaper in America. Eh, makes sense. I mean, unless you go to the Philippines, where, then, where it's like so cheap, and then... uh Yeah, but but if you shoot in the Philippines, you get what you pay for. Well, hey man, Corman made some great films in the Philippines. Okay, great is in quotes. Okay, Corman made some entertaining films in the Philippines. I'll give you that one. With Empire's catalog, unfortunately, once it got broken up, Epic was was trying desperately to, to make money off of it. They sold the titles everywhere. Anybody who wanted to buy them for VHS or for TV got them. That's why it's so difficult. That's why this Empire box set that just came out was so difficult to put together. For, I think, the, what is it, 12 movies or something in that, there was something like eight different companies that own them at this point. So that you have all this negotiation. And that's why another thing that he decided when he went to Full Moon was, I'm keeping all of these. Other companies don't get these. I own all the movies I make. You'll also notice, once we get to the Full Moon era, he's not doing pickups anymore. Full Moon is movies he makes. I think when he goes to Full Moon... He learned from his mistakes at Empire. Technically, Empire was never successful. I mean, you know, they never made a ton of money to the point where Empire was basically him using up all of his rookie mistakes. Unfortunately, that killed a lot of cool stuff, but we got a lot of great movies from that era. Mistakes were made, but um, long-lasting effects of what uh, they they did are still around. The movies are still uh, talked about. The movies are still getting re-released, and new generations of people are finding them and discovering them and seeing how great they were. And some of them didn't get the recognition that they deserved back then, but now they finally are. So I think that um, it's there was good and there was bad. But you're going to get that with uh, with almost anybody in the film industry. Even though Peter wasn't here tonight due to technical difficulties, he probably won't be back next week, but he should be the week after. Peter has a little something he'd like to say about Empire Pictures. I grew up with Empire Pictures, Full Moon, and Charles Band in general without even really realizing it until quite some time later. 
One of my earliest recollections of watching a horror movie that wasn't a Jason or Freddy flick was watching the Stuart Gordon Lovecraft movies Reanimator and From Beyond. I didn't realize much later that they were released by Empire Pictures. I would describe the works of Charles Band and the films of Empire releasing and Full Moon to be, for the most part, really enjoyable and creative schlock. Most of these movies go the extra mile over some of the other B-movie and exploitation releases. You had some nice creature feature stuff like Ghoulies, some weird psychological supernatural horror stuff like Prison, science fiction action like Arena and The Eliminators, and downright cult classics like Robot Jocks and Trancers. Full Moon Pictures is where I'd say Charles Band really came into his own, though. When I think of Charles Band, the first thing that always pops into my head are the Puppet Master movies and Dollman. Full Moon had other fantastic genre flicks, like the clearly meant-to-be-Doctor Strange movie Dr. Mordred and the awesome Castle Freak. Charles Band clearly loves Jeffrey Combs. Empire Pictures and Full Moon ooze creativity, regardless of how low the budget or how no-name the actors may have been. And, just as with last week, Charles Band has a couple of words about the end of Empire. Did you see a big transition in the making of the movies when you went from Empire to Full Moon, since Full Moon was direct-to-video? And they still had pretty high production budgets. I mean, movies like Oblivion and that could have gone up against Mm -hmm. anything Hollywood was putting out at that point. Yes, that was already... Already the, the budgets had come down, and we were finding you know, other ways to try to keep the production levels up. And again, the budget, by comparison today to even the early full moon films, less than a third. You know, so so it's, it's not gone in a great direction. But I, I, you know, hope springs eternal. And you know, I, I believe now we're finally at a point where um, it's a whole different mindset. But we can do really well, uh, I think, in time with the way the the situation is set up now. But yeah, I mean, we 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 had theatrical releases on almost every Empire movie in the 80s. We had three regional offices. We were sending prints all over the country. You know, some of these movies were released again back in the 80s of a thousand prints, a thousand screens, which is kind of amazing. And some were as few as 100 or 200, and we rolled those prints around the country. We had almost no theatrical successes in the 80s, in spite of how these movies are looked at, and a lot of them, I think, are you know, stand the test of time. We didn't have one movie that broke out, you know, theatrically and made any money. I mean, you know, some did okay. Ghoulies did pretty well. That was sort of the first venture, sort of, you know, good luck out of the box. So we, we actually made some money on Ghoulies. But every other film either broke even or lost a little. A reanimator lost a lot of money. Now, you know, it's such a cool movie. It's, it was not a theatrical hit at all. But again, part of the formula back in the day was not so much, oh, let's release this movie theatrically and make money. It was to satisfy P&A commitments, which is prints and ad commitments to uh, people we made our deals with. So, you know, our, our main home back in the 80s for video was Vestron Video. And the way those deals worked back then is, you know, you got a bigger advance if you could guarantee a certain amount of money spent on prints and ads or P&A. So we may have had a $2 million P&A commitment on Troll, and we spent that money, made 500 prints of Troll, and maybe we lost 20, 30% of that at the end of the day, but then we got a $2 million advance from Vestron Video. So it was a, you know, it was a whole different era as to how, how these movies were not just financed, but how they were released in order to, what the theory was back in the day, to enhance the, the direct-to-video potential. And that's when, I mean, the, the, those direct-to-video movies were, were, some of them were huge hits. They were all, they were all successful, certainly for Pestron Video. But, you know, this was back when a VHS copy at uh, Wholesale was going for about 30 bucks. 
So the fact that we ship 100, 150, 200,000 VHS tapes on a lot of the movies of the sort of Empire era movies, that was great. So the, the restaurant was real happy because they recovered their advance and made some money and certainly increased the footprint of these movies. So people who, you know, if they didn't see it theatrically, they certainly were aware of these movies. And, and being aware of the movies made them go and rent them. As we move into a full moon waxing next week, where can people find you in the meantime? You can find me at uh, Good Bad Flicks on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. And you could also go to my website, which is goodbadflicks.com. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Next week, a full moon waxing. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Come on in.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.